Uh, If you have your Bibles with me or copy of God's Word, you can turn to John chapter 17. Uh, We're going to be looking uh, at a a powerful passage uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, If you've ever read through uh, the the Scriptures before, you know that you get to um, a point in the Old Testament, maybe near the middle, maybe towards the front half, where this giant figure, Moses, who do you read about in the book of Exodus, uh, is nearing the end of his life. Uh, He was a unique man in that he knew that his life was about to end. And so uh, he presents a certain measure of clarity towards the end of his life, knowing that it is about to end. Of course, we know that all those people who are facing the end of their life tend to think about what matters and forget about the things that don't matter. And that, of course, uh, was true for Moses as well. So what Moses does is he draws all of the people together to leave them with his last words. And if you read in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy is his last words to the people. It's a lot of words. It's a whole book that he leaves them towards the end of his life. Uh, But they are his last words declaring to the people what really matters and really forgetting what doesn't matter. This really sets a pattern uh, throughout the scriptures. You see lots of these scriptural figures uh, leaving last words to the people throughout uh, their tradition. And then you come to the New Testament, you come to the Gospel of John, and you read in the later chapters of the Gospel of John that Jesus does the very same thing. He has a longer discourse right towards the end of his life. It says in John chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then if you keep reading, uh, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then he leaves them with this long discourse, this this, uh, couple of chapters worth of teaching in which he wants them to know what matters and what really doesn't. And that's John chapter 14 to 17. And at the very end, we come to this passage uh, called the High Priestly Prayer. So Jesus finishes this discourse with a prayer between him and the Father. And of course, we know just after that, Christ is betrayed and he is arrested on his way to crucifixion. And so we're looking at this prayer. And last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first section, verses 1 to 5, that talk about Jesus' relationship with the Father. And then we looked at the second section, verses uh, 6 to 19, which talk about uh, Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And what I'd like to do this morning is just look at that last section where Jesus prays to the Father specifically for you and I, for his followers And what it reminds us is that you and I, we, we are on his mind. We are the substance of the prayers of Jesus Christ just before he is being arrested and starting on this path of rejection. So I'm going to read this morning John chapter 3, or John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Listen to God's word. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one." 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. We desperately need to hear your voice. We hunger and thirst for you. Often we don't realize that that's what that hunger and thirst is for, but fundamentally our spirits need to hear your voice. We need to be refreshed in your truth and in the message of the gospel. So Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, may you guide our hearts and our minds as we reflect on it. May we encounter you through the power of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Many of you know that uh, we have four kids at the house, and uh, my wife and I often think about um, premarital counseling that we took when we were uh, getting ready to be married. Uh, We reflect on parenting tips that we've heard uh, throughout the years, and both in premarital counseling and in parenting classes, they tell you this, that when it comes to, to having kids, that you need to present a united front. You need to make sure that that mom and dad are on the same page whenever you make decisions because those decisions come up and you want to be unified as you approach your kids. Well, now that my wife and I have had four kids, we realize how difficult that very thing is, uh, very practically because there are very little times where we can even just have a conversation with one another without any child listening on. There have been times, I kid you not, there have been times where we've thought, do we have to lock ourselves in the bathroom? just so we can have a a private conversation, so we can present uh, a united front. And if you have parents and you have kids, you know what that's all about. Well, we've been in a sermon series the past couple weeks that explores the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And we've seen this relationship so far, but we're really going to see it acutely over the next couple weeks as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, as we, of course, look at the crucifixion as well. But for what what we've been doing is, for now, we've been listening in on a divine conversation. We've been listening in on a divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And what is so remarkable as we listen in, as children listening in on this conversation, what is so remarkable is that they are talking about us. In Jesus' last moments, he's praying to God about us. That's what verse 20 is really all about. He's praying about those that hear the apostles' teaching and follow it. And the history of those who listen to the apostles' teaching and follow everyday believers, just like you and I, Jesus and the Father, are talking about us. And what Jesus does is he prays several things for us, his followers. The first thing he prays for is he prays about our unity. He prays about our unity. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That is the apostle's word. That's us that he's speaking about. Jesus says this in verse 21, that you may all be one 
Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. See, what Jesus is thinking about here is that there is a sweet unity that exists within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons within this Trinity uh, are completely unified. They do, don't do anything out of lockstep with one another. It's a, it's a perfect unity of mind and will and emotion. And what Jesus is praying here is that he desires this same kind of unity amongst his followers. Now, it isn't exact sameness. There isn't exact sameness that you see in the Trinity. Instead, it is a unity that embraces and lives within a beautiful diversity. And so, Jesus prays this for us and tells us that it happens in our midst when we give ourselves to the will of God the Father, just as Jesus has given himself to the will of of God the Father. Now, you don't have to look far in the history of Jesus's followers, the history of Christianity, to see that we have been far from unified within our history. Uh, there are times where I'll engage uh, with folks um, uh, just in my life, and uh, they'll ask me questions like, well, I, I hear you go to church. Well, what faith are you? And I'll say, well, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then they'll ask me, well, what, what type of Christian are you? And I say, well, I'm in the Protestant tradition. And then they'll ask me, well, what type of Protestant are you? And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian. And then they'll say, well, well what does that mean? What, what type of Presbyterian are you? And I'll say, well, actually, there's, there's 12 major types of Presbyterian. And there's actually 50 to 60 minor branches of Presbyterianism that is out there. And then they'll say, well, what is the difference? What, what makes all those things different? And I often feel very petty with the answers that I give them about what, or at least the answers feel a little petty as I share them with people. And so, of course, the history of Christianity, we could be better at being unified. In fact, John Calvin said that the ruin of the human race is that alienated from God, it has become broken and shattered itself. So we all know that we could certainly do better at this. Now, I do believe that there is a beauty in the diversity of things like denominations when each is considered to contribute their gift to the universal Christian community. But of course, there's been a lot of ugliness to this is too, too. And so that's why Jesus prays for our unity here. He prays for a unity amongst the universal church or the universal body of Christians. But I think what's true of the universal true church ought also be true of the local body as well. Because what we do here each Sunday is we gather as a local congregation, as a really a local expression of God's kingdom in this neighborhood. And when we do, we bring a lot of diversity to the table. As I think about just within this congregation, there's a lot of diversity in background, in experience. There's certainly a lot of diversity in opinion and politics. Uh, there's diversity in age and stage. The list goes on and on and on about how different we all are sitting here this morning. And of course, that's why Jesus prays for our unity. 
He knows that, that our diversity, how different we are, could be an occasion for our division. But instead, he prays and asks that our unity would be an example to the world of the strength of our faith and our mutual union with Jesus Christ. Now, don't be mistaken. Uh, unity doesn't mean the absence of conflict, right? And there's conflict, we all know that, all throughout life. And there's healthy conflict within the church as well. In fact, I think that healthy conflict is a sign of a healthy church. What this simply means is this, that our unity comes not necessarily from our agreement over things. In fact, we disagree over a lot of things. But our unity must come from our common union with Jesus Christ and our common union around the truth of the gospel. Because think about it for a minute, because when you really think about it, on paper, we should never get along with one another. We sh- this should never work when you think about it from a human perspective on paper, and yet we are uni- unified in Christ, and we are unified in the power of the gospel. And friends, I think this also parenthetically demonstrates why Lone Ranger Christianity, if you've ever heard of that before, why Lone Ranger Christianity really isn't Christianity at all. Because one of the things that the Scriptures teaches is this, that we are all called to be in relationship with a local body. We are all called to be radically present within each other's lives and bearing one another's burdens. And only then can we really demonstrate the power of union with Jesus Christ? So Jesus prays for our unity here. But Jesus also prays about our glory. Look at verse 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we looked at this idea of glory, and we saw how Jesus longs to glorify the Father, and how the Father longs to glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, we see this mysterious mutual self-glorification within the Godhead. But what our passage tells us this morning is that we are also called to participate in that glory. And we do so by working, by living, by advocating for the glory of God in our lives. But I think our passage even hints that this idea of participating in glory is more than just that. Because Jesus also seems to allude to the fact that we have an opportunity to somehow participate within God in the power of this glory. Now think for a moment about what Jesus was about to face when he prayed this prayer. Jesus was about to face one of the darkest chapters in his life, his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion. But we also know that on the other side of this dark chapter of his life, he was about to be united with God the Father in the glory of heaven. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's very clear about is this, that if we are his followers, then we also walk a similar path to our Savior. We walk a similar path to Jesus Christ. 
And what we also realize is that this life is full of dark chapters as well. We've all been through dark chapters. We've all been through difficult points in our life. We, we often walk the road of hardship, of suffering, and of rejection. But we also get to look forward to glory, just as Jesus Christ did. We get a taste of that glory here in this life, but one of the things that the Scriptures tell us is this. One day, we will experience it in the full. That's what Corinthians talks about for seeing in a mirror dimly now, but one, one day we'll experience the fullness, fullness of it. What it's saying is we get to taste that glory now, almost like an appetizer of that glory now, but one day we will experience it in the full. Jesus is reminding us that, that there is a future glory for him, but there's a future glory for you and I as well. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis says is that that future glory will be so great that it will make even the greatest moments in this life feel like nothing. It will make these moments in this life feel as if we are waking up from a bad dream when we experience the fullness of God's glory by comparison. See, one of the things that the gospel reminds us is that if we are united with Christ, if you and I, if we've repented from our sins, if we've experienced his grace, then this is our future. You, I, we will participate in the fullness of the glory of God. You see, I think knowing that glory must have strengthened Jesus for the journey. And I think the same is true for you and I. I think God calls us to be very heavenly-minded people, to every day spend time anticipating eagerly the glory of heaven that awaits us. Because I really believe when we know the end, it makes a difference in the now. And so, Christian, remember your end. This glory awaits you, and it should make all the difference in the now. So Jesus here prays for our unity. He prays for our glory, but he also prays about our love. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, what Jesus is saying is that, that our unity, that our glory is only made possible by love. You see, that's what Jesus said at the very beginning in chapter 3. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Of course, we know from John 16, what was the motivation behind all this? For God so loved the world. You see, it was the glory of God and the love of his children that motivated the work of Jesus Christ in salvation, his rescue mission on our behalf. I love the way the, the Jesus storybook Bible puts it. Remember that it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. Instead, it was his love that kept him there on our behalf. And that love, that love is what makes our unity and our glory possible. Jesus here is, is tying our unity to our mutual love for one another and our love for God. 
You see, this, this unity can't be manufactured. It can't be something that we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to make happen. It has to be rooted in God's deep and radical love for us. Think for a minute. Think for a minute about the most reprehensible person you know in church, right? This, of course, is wonderfully hypothetical because there's no reprehensible people in a church, of course, right? But think about it if it were purely hypothetical. And remember that Jesus loves that person. As much as you struggle with that person, Jesus loves that person. Jesus was willing to die for that person. And so he calls us to love as well, recognizing that each and every one of us were ultimately reprehensible to him because of our sin, and yet he died for us in spite of it. See, Jesus also ties not only our unity to love, but also our glory. All of it is made possible by love. We don't earn our way to glory. We don't gain access because of our goodness or the fact that our goodness somehow outweighs our sin. There's nothing we do to merit that glory. Instead, we get that glory simply because God chose us to be objects of his deep mercy, his deep grace, and ultimately his deep love. It is all about his love. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He's praying for our unity. He's praying for our glory. He's praying for our love. But finally, he says this, and we can't can't move on without recognizing this, that Jesus prays about the purpose of it all, the purpose of our unity, the purpose of our love, the, the, the purpose of our glory. He says it in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. And don't miss this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, friends, we are called to be living billboards. We are called to be living demonstrations of the power of the gospel. We are called to display the wonder of God for the world around us to see. One commentator said this, he said, unity must be visibly based on love so that when the world sees them, it will know immediately that they represent Jesus Christ. And so, friends, are you a picture of the unity of the gospel, the glory of God demonstrated through your great love for one another? Does that sound kind of hard? I don't know about you, but as I reflected on this passage, it sounded kind of hard to me as well. It sure does sound really hard, and that's exactly why Jesus is here praying for us. Not only does he give his life for you, not only does glory await you, a glory in which every tear will be wiped away, not only does he love you far more than you can even imagine, But Jesus also prays for you. He prays for you. Amen? Let's pray.